This is a Momentum Media production. Nerd alert! Property Nerds, <laughs> the home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and trends. We're back again for another episode on the Property Nerds podcast. My name is Arjun Paliwal, co-host of the Property Nerds podcast, head of research at Investigate Buyers Agency, and I'm joined by Lee Paliwal. Yes, I'm Lee Paliwal, and I'm the director of Hills Finance. We're a mortgage brokerage based in northwest of Sydney. Well, we've got a jam-packed episode because a lot of today's episodes about Timely stuff, isn't it, Lee? Because a lot of updates been yeah, happening over the last month. A lot of big updates, and I guess like where we always like to start is what leads housing is finance, as they say, right? So, what's happening on the finance front? So, the most major thing that's happened in the finance world over the last month is that on the May third, the RBA announced an increase of 025 percent on the cash rate. Most of you may be aware of that. If you have, you're not aware of that. You've probably been under a rock somewhere, but yeah, that's happened. And um, this is actually the first cash rate increase since November, 2010. So pretty much 11 years since the last uh, cash rate increase. Fun fact, I moved to Australia from Wellington, New Zealand on November, 2010. There you go. So uh, bam, anniversary for me. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I guess, did everyone pass it in full? That was a question I had in my mind. Yeah. So since then, most lenders have passed on the full 0.25%. And so what that means is the lenders will increase their variable rate by that much. So most of them have implemented that already, if not would have by mid-May. Yeah. Well, the thing I always uh, I get interested by is that when the rates go up, it's like, instantly everyone just passed it on it's like here we go done pass Uh, it on that day you get a lot of calls everyone's like should i fix what do i do and then straight away that i'm gonna fix i'm gonna fix so they just yeah so and then on the opposite end you've got like the decreases and then you got someone who'll be like "Hmm, you know what i might might give a 0.1 out of that 0.25 or maybe i might i might do a 0.12 out of that 0.25 and they might take a week to decide and then they're all looking at each other going do you want to go first do i want to go you go first and then westpac's all right i'll follow you so it's such a strange strange thing right when we look at it that way exactly and so obviously we're the property nerd so Obviously, most of us, you know, what does that actually mean for investors holding an additional mortgage in terms of the weekly cash flow, right, Um, with this rate increase? So I wanted to go through a couple of, I guess, figures of how that may look like from a weekly or monthly point of view. And that gives obviously sheds a bit of light on in terms of what that may mean for you from a cash flow sense. And we were looking at it from like, what, different loan amounts, a current repayment, and then at a certain interest rate, and then what if the rates go up by 0.25? Yeah, so let's start with, I guess, an average investor loan size or I guess an average loan size of 400000 So let's say if the interest rate was 2.75% prior to any cash rate increase, right, um, your weekly repayment on a $400,000 loan would be $376.67, right? Now, if we've had a cash increase and the bank has now passed that on that 4.25%, your rate has now gone from 2.75 up to 3%. And so your repayment would now be $12.27 higher for that weekly repayment. So $388.94 on a 400K debt. Well, that's a 
coffee at Eastern Suburbs gone for you now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> coffee and a half. Coffee, coffee and a bagel. Oh, no, not no, probably not a bagel, but um, yeah. So twelve dollars and twenty seven cents. And obviously, as your debts are higher, gets higher, then the increase per week will be slightly more. What's it like at a million bucks? Because obviously, you know, we're calling in from we're dialing in in Sydney, and mm-hmm. you know, everything's a mil plus here. What's it like in Sydney? So I'm um, using the same rate. So pre-cash rate increase at 2.75, you would have been paying $941.56 on a million dollars loan. And now that's gone up by $30.80 per week. Okay. So with the cash. All these huge amounts of media articles, everything, oh my God, sky's falling down. And I guess this is just perspective at its finest, right? Like $30 a week. I'm not saying this doesn't impact some households. It definitely will. But the most important point is that the banks assess us at rates that are, what, 2 to 2.5% higher than interest uh, they're rates? They're using the a 3.5% assessment rate in, in servicing. Right. So they have borrowing capacity. So, so that's um, huge, a huge gap. And we're talking 0.25 here and we're talking $30 on a million-dollar yeah. mortgage. So I guess it's really just putting that perspective to it that, we don't need to get too stuck into, wow, it's the first time in 11 years or it's this huge shift. I'm very positive that many households feel comfortable with this change and be able to handle it. Look, it's one less lunch per week on a million dollars of debt. For if some, that may be way. easy, but for me, that's uh, <laughs> a bit harder than, harder than it sounds. Um, and what's been happening on the lending front of lately? Um, I know from a finance perspective, you love to keep the finger on the pulse there with, with regards to ABS data for lending changes. What's been happening on that front? Um, so the most recent release for March 2020 has now come out. And so, so the value of new loan commitments uh, for total housing has rose by 1.6% to $33.3 billion, and that's following a fall of 3.5% in February after reaching a record high of $33.9 billion in January. For owner-occupier housing, this rose by 0.9% to $21.6 billion, and that was 2.2% lower compared to a year ago. And for investor housing, this rose by 2.9%, to a record high of $11.7 billion. So the investors are the driving force for the big rise in the recent March ending data. Yes. Yep. I think they'll look a little different come April, May, but these are still huge numbers beyond the 2019 period. And I mean, this just shows an intense level of demand when it comes to how much finance is still going out there. There's obviously a lag in this data being March ending. However, even with that level, even if it came back a little bit, this is still quite strong when it comes to the finance. So it's clear that the investors are here making a big difference and really the driving force for finance trends. So the hot topic this month, the elections. And the big question is, Arjun, Labour or Liberal? Well, see, this is where uh, it gets interesting. And, you know, we thought it would be a great time to actually dig into some research from our end to see labor or liberal does it really matter for property investing that that's the that's the thing that everyone's really thinking of right because people have their thoughts about what's going to happen and if it matters or not and so obviously many investors are interested to know which party favors the housing market or property investment 
some have the perception that Liberal is more favourable for the investors, but is that true? Well, this is where um, I actually don't think that's the case. And this is um, our research that we recently did. And if you're looking to check this out, you can jump on the investikit.com.au website. And this is under our property market research tab, where you'll find it on the news and insight section. It's actually our most recent blog post that we put out and our research team and I came together to to check out what's happened in the past. And this is where it's pretty interesting. When we look at the 2003 to 2007 period, the Liberal Party in power, and during that time, there was an annual growth rate in the Australian house prices of about 11.7% per annum, which is whopping. Um, You then look at the Labor period, 2007 to 2013, that number drops right down to 3.3% per annum. And then you go to 2013 to current 2021, and that number jumps up to 7.2 per annum average, which is also massive, right? So looking at that alone from actual house price changes, it's definitely correct when it says price points under liberal actually grow more. However, I don't think it's that fair to just assume just because the price changes are there and that's happening and all of a sudden uh, we've got to give credit to liberal because we need to map out major property market events that happened on a timeline to really see what's happened across this time period, Lee. So when you look at it during 2007 to 2013, there was a lot more happening during that time when it comes to you know, heading into the GFC during that time. We also had a sluggish economy around 2012, 2013, as the cash rate dropped four times to 2.5%. First homeowners grant boost was removed in 2010. And, you know, the 2010, there were rules allowing foreign investment in real estate that were introduced back in 2008. They got withdrawn. So there were just so many shifts, both in the strong strong end when it comes to uh, certain boosts of first homeowner grants then removed and cash rate changes to the economy is, I think there's just a a lot more going on. It's not like Liberal didn't have their fair share of things to charge through as well, because during that time, there was a lot of credit shifts as well when it came through APRA regulatory bodies in between that 2014 uh, to 2021 leadership period for them. So I don't think it's as fair to give the trophy immediately. And this is really where we need to look at it deeper, not just from price performance, but from actual activity through different types of buyers. So that really covers off some interesting analysis on the price performance side of things. However, what's the picture like when it comes to investors specifically and their finance uptake? Because that's always been something that really isn't of interest to me. So well, how about that? Well, yeah. So this is when when you look at it from the perspective of performance, Liberal was the winner when it came to house price performance during their periods of, I guess, government. And when you go deeper, though, you think, okay, well, if they were the winners of house price performance, then surely we must see a much better performance amongst investors or investor finance during Liberal because it's all so pro-investment. Well, see, that wasn't the case. And when we go into it, the trend line of finance, we we decided to look at it in a certain way. We decided to say, why don't we look at new loan commitment values of property investors and owner occupiers over the past two decades? And we also decided to look at their ratio trend as well. So we could see, you know, what's the proportion 
of investor to owner occupier loan value ratio. And what was interesting to find is there was no huge explosions other than a 14, 15, 2014, 2015 period where Liberal had a huge explosion during that point. But that proportion of investor to owner occupier loans has actually been declining from 2015 all the way to 2021 under Liberal. And then 2004, all the way to 2008 under Liberal. During 2008 to 2014, other than a small dip during GFC, we saw investor finance to owner-occupier ratios increase under Labor. So that was very fascinating because it showed that under Liberal, the trend for investor to owner-occupier loans were actually decreasing most of the times around the labor for that period. It wasn't decreasing. It had one year of dip during the GFC, then was flattening and increasing on the way up, all the Mm -hmm. way up to that crossover period into when Liberal came by. So looking at that, the core answer here is that, no, there is no clear favoritism by Liberal on pro-investor, you know, finance take-up that made them really come out and charge and do a lot because the data says otherwise. Well, there you go. It's not about the party. It's all about how much you do or you don't want to party for your finances. Yeah, Yeah, that's true, right? I guess the power sits with you. It doesn't really sit with the political party. It's, yeah, it's about how much you want to party or don't want to party because if you've got your finances in order, it's clear that, you know, investors are wanting to get more action or more stable during Labour governments and there was less investor activity happening on the way down. So I guess the final thing on that note, Lee, is that, you know, it's not like the government comes in liberal or labor and just controls everything to do with the flow of money. That's not exactly what they do. And it's not their job. It just happens to be that in times of liberal leadership, we actually see the trend of finance take up for investors reduce. So it's not all about this pro investor and all these investors come out of nowhere because it's all liberal, not the case at all from what the data says. Fantastic. And that can be found again on the investikit.com.au website. Yeah, this is under the um, news and insight section. Fantastic. Well, it's also that time of month where you and the rest of the research team at Investikit have been working on your latest white paper as well. We've been nerding out. So it's been uh, been a lot of fun. So what's been cooking of late on the research side of things? Well, again, this, I think this was a very timely one because um, we wanted to make this episode very much to what's happening right now. And the Liberal or Labour was one example of the election times we're in and how it doesn't make a huge difference from a, from a performance of investor activity. But when it comes to the most recent white paper that we've been working on, we've been tying it back to what's been happening in the borders. So the reopening of Australian borders has been happening and we definitely wanted to see what sort of trends we feel would emerge because um, obviously many got it wrong from the time that the borders shut. And when the borders shut, everyone assumed chaos, housing market's going to fall over and the complete opposite happened. So we wanted to unpack what the borders would see or what the borders would create from this reopening and what impact we could see to the housing market or five key trends that we picked up. Amazing. And so again, this can be found on the investigate.com.au website and that's a forward slash for white papers. So Awesome. So I guess, well, the first thing that comes to mind, Arjun, is the rental crisis. Is that going to be a whole lot worse? 
Well, I guess it's a really good point you raised because this is one of the core trends we picked up as part of this, this research paper. Why many people made the mistake on analyzing the borders being shut and migration not coming and, and seeing or thinking that housing was just going to fall over was actually that when the borders shut, they didn't understand the buyer type that was coming through. What often happens is that when many migrants come from overseas, they rent first. And I believe it was a study done by the Grattan Institute where, on average, migrants tend to rent for at least four years before turning to buyers. So this is clear that it wasn't going to have this whole pool of buyers suddenly disappear. And instead, what we saw was what we should have seen, and that was the rental vacancy rate spike. Mm. during the month of lockdowns and the months following because the border shut and our CBDs were impacted the most, especially during that time period. So it's been a strange two years, I guess, you know, like vacancy rates spiked up and then came back down. And what we're really seeing now is that should vacancy, I guess, should the whole border flow continue? And right now, just because it's open doesn't mean it's truly open. And what I mean by that is other countries need to react in that same way. And we're not all on the same way in terms of exiting or maintaining certain pandemic status. And so it will be gradual. But as this, you know, these trends that we're noting here are under the assumption that it's become very fierce. Mm -hmm. And so from a rising rental demand, the rental vacancy rates have actually dropped already to a very, very low level. And with the reopening of the borders, we expect that another year is very much ahead of strong rises in rents. So if you're thinking of interest rates as a hot topic on everyone's mind, we're very likely to see rents rise substantially over this next 12 months and even beyond that, actually. And in our opinion, this is going to just be a very big issue for renters. We're going to see rents rise and and that's going to cripple a lot of renters um, from a finance perspective. And we're actually also going to see a lot of investors bring back some lost cash flow. Rental yields are likely to recover. And you're going to be able to offset a lot of your interest rate changes or anything that you might be worrying on that side. It's, it's very likely that we see a huge shift in rents when it comes to the year ahead from the first trend of being borders opening. Great. And so what's the second trend you'd like to call out? Well, the second trend is actually um, something that you know many people did get right. And I guess the first thing that happened was when borders shut, we definitely saw local tourism economy suffer. And had it not been for a lot of the stimulus, the support, local tourism, as we started to open up, there would have been a lot worse. And that was definitely a key part to all of this. But the local tourism economies, we're, we're about to see a big recovery in terms of that. And we decided actually um, to do a deep dive onto one particular market that stood out to us, and that was the market of Cairns. And there you go. Yeah, Cairns. Um, we, we actually, love Cairns. We, we do love it. for our first anniversary, wedding anniversary. Yeah, first wedding anniversary. We got up to a lot, lot there. I think what we had um, uh, the Great Barrier Reef, which is always always pretty famous. And we went there. We um, tried some crocodile, and I learned that Arjun's Indian stomach um, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's strong for spices, but um, he said that it was strong for motion sickness as well. But I caught him in the back of the boat with a brown paper bag. So <laughs> it wasn't so strong in the end. Yeah, that's, uh, that was an interesting one. I remember the moment I was like, hey, uh, you're like, um, 
you should take these pills for motion sickness. This boat's crazy. It's just going up and down. And I was like, no, Lee, I'm fine. You know, the Indian stomach, if I can handle all the spices, this, this boat's a piece of cake for me. Right. And, uh, I got the yeah. tap on the shoulder from someone. And they're like, um, excuse me, man, your your husband's in the back. He's not feeling too well. <laughs> it was literally 15 minutes later. So there you go. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> stories, stories. Yeah. Like that was um that was an interesting one for sure. But Kent is definitely an interesting market for the recovery in local tourism. So I guess uh, hospitality and tourism contributed 13.6% of the total value to the local economy for Kent. It's definitely much higher than the Australian average. To give you some context, the Australian average is around 5.7% of total value. So when you think of that, Kent is definitely a tourism and hospitality hotspot. Now, when the um, airport passenger movement gets tracked, we saw a big fall off naturally after 2019's data. And what was interesting is between 20, let's say 2012 to 2019 or 18, during those six years, airport passenger movement amongst domestic travelers was definitely on the way up and it was getting more and more popular. Then all of a sudden, 2019, border closures, and then bang, you know, Cairns gets massively impacted. And interestingly enough, Cairns' unemployment rate was also on the mend. You know, around 2016, it was a pretty high number, around that 7% number, but it was crawling back down. Even pre-COVID, you could see the momentum start to come together. Gold Coast was another area as well where uh, the international airlines obviously impacted from a local economy. But what the local economies did is that they obviously had a lot less money flowing through from tourism and hospitality overseas. And, you know, Cairns unemployment rate did peak back up to 6.1% in March of 2021. But then from there, it really started, you know, coming back down. In 2021, actually, which is the second year of border closure, the international passengers coming into Cairns was extremely low, I think 0.4% of the pre-COVID number. And domestic passengers were only 56% of pre-COVID level. So there's a lot of recovery room left in an economy like Cairns. And I do feel that with its other projects and other strengths coming there, we should see a huge recovery in the local tourism economy. So I guess our thinking here is that as the Australian borders really opened, um, international travel is coming back to normal around the globe and Ken's economy is going to benefit from this as one example. Mm -hmm. But when we deep dive into the top six countries, when it comes to the origin countries of Australian international tourists, China, New Zealand really mm-hmm. led the pack. Yep. Then we had USA, UK, Japan, and Singapore. Now, this is where it gets very interesting, though. So this is why we say, yes, this will recover, but give it some time. Because China was massive, $12.4 billion in total spending for that year when it comes to a huge, yeah, wow. that, that's huge, right? So, what does that compare to with the other countries? Well, see, this is interesting. China and New Zealand both came in with some serious numbers, equaling each other for the level of tourism or tourists coming through. But New Zealand was ranked the third lowest or near the lowest when it comes to our top six countries' number of tourists. New Zealand ranked very, very low. It was one of the lowest, actually. it's because, like, obviously, we're Kiwi. We've got many Kiwi mates here. You've got a friend you can stay with. you got, you know, <laughs> you got yeah, accommodation. Got, got, got my cousin, got my bros exactly. around. And, uh, 
you know, life's pretty chill in New Zealand. So you just chill when you come to Australia as well. Yeah. So the, the wallets weren't flowing a lot for the Kiwis when they come to Australia. So I think whilst that's open, we won't see a, a huge amount of spending when we look at history. Really, what it's going to take is definitely that recovery in China. But unfortunately, uh, China's border is expected to be closed for longer and we aren't on When's the greatest. That, um, expecting to be well, at least well, until end of 2022, um, it's hard to say right now because they're really applying that COVID zero strategy over there in many cities. Um, yeah. But I guess the main thing is recovery is due to happen in the local tourism economies. Kansas is one example that we feel will pick right up. Chinese, New Zealand, USA, UK, Japan, Singapore, they're the big six countries from the, the I guess, the origin countries of Aussie tourists. And right now, the big gap is definitely the Chinese tourist market and a few of these other countries will take time to come back, but this is going to be one thing that will help our economy as time goes on, and we predict it to, to rise. Okay, so what's trend number three? Well, this is um, an interesting one. One thing that's been a big saviour during the pandemic has been household savings. If we look at border closures and then the trend line following border closures, we saw a huge uptick in household savings. Like when you look at March 2020 data up till June 2020 data, mm-hmm. it more than doubled. Yeah. So what clearly happened was like people were like, holy crap, what's happening here? People just went into what do you call it, survival mode and just didn't spend money really. Yeah, there was um a few things. So one was the refinance boom. Like mm-hmm. that was huge. And I'm sure yeah. people just loaded up offsets, took out some equity, chucked it on the side and said, I'll be fine now with a few hundred K in the bank. Number two was definitely people saving more and, and not traveling. No traveling, not even leaving the house potentially. Exactly. Number three was all the cash handed out. Yes, there were a lot of jobs saved, but there was also a lot more money that went out than that needed to go out, if that makes sense. I know it's a hard one. It's very debatable. But when you just look at some of the data of how much cash went out, it was just monstrous. Um, Did it go into the right hands? That's also another point, right? So a lot of this cash, a lot of just curling up, saving away, putting it away, saving a lot of jobs. Whilst all of that is happening, uncertainty just absolutely spiked our savings rate. Mm-hmm. Now, as we started to open up the country a little bit internally, we started to see that household savings rate normalized. And then again, we went into that huge lockdown, the double lockdown, they call it, from last year. Yeah. And that went spiked it back up again. Mm-hmm. Now, it's come back down again when we look at December ending data. And um, I guess to some extent, we might feel that, you know, things like sentiment decreasing, which actually has a negative correlation with household savings means that when sentiment decreases, there's a lag effect and a flow on to household savings increasing, mm-hmm. right? And then when sentiment increases, people are more confident, happy, and feel good, and spending starts to happen again. So right now, sentiment has been on a small slide from that March 2021 period, from that Consumer Sentiment Index by Westpac. And we are seeing that dip down a little bit, not to huge lows, but it is to sort of that long, longer-term trend line from last six years, actually, trend line. And so what that means is that we will start to see some normalization in household spending, in our opinion, because that cash is running out from stimulus. Life is getting a little bit or as much as possible to normal, but we just don't think it'll be dragging down rapidly. We do see it normalizing, but why it won't drag down rapidly is because the sentiment's been decreasing and with sentiment decreasing it should respond to people keeping a little bit more cash 
in their bank at home. I guess the other thing that's really interesting, which will normalize the spending a little bit more or normalize savings rates a bit more, is this phase of revenge spending. So if you think about us, mm. right, we just went to Thailand recently. We're in New Zealand We're now New Zealand recording right this. Now. Uh, so, you know. You when, bought a scooter the other day when we got back from Thailand. <laughs> I as did too. As soon as I got back. <laughs> as soon as I got back, I had the scooter riding in Thailand. I was like, I want me one of those. And that was cool. But what that term is, revenge spending is simply just people going, hey, look, I've been locked down for two years. I've been restricted and I haven't spent a dime. And people will flow their money overseas. People will spend on goods. People will it's spend It's like locally. catching up on lost time, pretty much. That's Bam. what people are doing. Nailed it. Nailed it. That's Even it. from like, you know, just like getting your hair done, all that kind of stuff, like things that people have been putting off more than usual, they're, they're taking yeah. advantage of that. So we're essentially saying that, there is going to be a normalization of household savings. We should see that trend come down to that longer term average, but we should also see that trend of slowing down the savings not be as dramatic simply because that sentiment coming down just means that people will coop up a little bit, but there's still a lot of revenge spending to do, and that's what's going to normalize that cash. That's great. I'm going to continue to do some more revenge spending then. <laughs> <laughs> well, we said people, not you, okay? <laughs> So, so that's obviously trend number three. So number four, it looks like, Pierre, about internal migration. Tell me about that. Yeah, so everyone's been thinking that, oh, when life returns to normal, no one wants to move cities and no one's going to work from home. And I think that's such a silly way to look at it, right? I mean, it's not this knee-jerk reaction that people take just because, you, you know, some things are getting back to normal. Like once a pathway opens up for people, not everyone actually reacted to that pathway immediately, right? So to give you some examples, there are like us, like we were thinking, hey, you know, laptop lifestyle, do we work, live somewhere else? And that decision hasn't come through to fruition yet. We're still in Sydney. We're, we're enjoying time there. Our business is there. Our businesses are there. Our team, yep. everything like that. But we put a lot of time and effort and energy into that thinking. And, and um, we've seen many others take that same time and energy and thinking. And usually what we're now two years later, many people are now making that move. So this whole thought that everyone made the move instantly, and that's just a knee jerk reaction. And people are going to run back to the big cities now and no one's going to leave the big cities. is just so, so incorrect. It's a mm-hmm. thing that people think it'll take time and it, it will just continue happening. So our trend here is that the chase for lifestyle won't disappear anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And that internal migration trends that we're talking about hearing in the media now is not new. Yes, it's supercharged during COVID because a pathway opened up of the way we work, the way companies must and will remain open to this. And as a result, this has really shifted how people think. And not everyone's taking that journey. Not everyone will. But as time goes on, because the pathway is open, people will see their friends do it. Friends of friends do it. And then they'll eventually think about how they bring it into their lifestyle and it will happen. Capital cities have been losing people to the region time and time again. Yeah. And it's not something that's just happened recently. You know, if you look back at the greatest Sydney internal migration number, we've got 10 years of data right in front of us. It has not been positive for any of that period over 10 years. So go. to say that this was a trend so, is, is of COVID, it's not. No, it just maybe 
amplified it a little bit more. That's right. And so the pathway is now open, which simply means it's going to continue. It's not going to disappear anytime soon. So with the overseas borders opening, people shouldn't feel like everything's going to come back to normal and everything's going to go back because people have accepted this. People enjoy this. There's obviously a group that don't, but it's going to keep happening in our opinion. Yeah, exactly. And on that note of overseas travel, when we went to Thailand, that airport was shoulder to shoulder during customs. When we came to New Zealand, we walked straight through that airport. Yeah. Like it was a straight through walkthrough. So interesting. So, okay. So that brings us to the final trend, trend number five, which is interest rates and employment. Well, actually, Lee, before that trend, I might actually share a few markets because this uh, I'm going through the trend lines, but I just realized I haven't shared a few interesting markets okay. on the recent yeah, one. Yeah, let's go through it. So on the chase for lifestyle, um, we noted two markets that are showing up a lot in the data, and that's Maitland and Harvey Bay. The Maitland region, obviously very charming regional town, rich in history, arts, community, surrounded by Newcastle, Sydney's not too far, the Hunter Valley region's not too far. But this really supercharged when it came to internal migration, you know, a big jump, one of the higher percentages in the country. And uh, that's obviously led to higher housing demand. Uh, Vacancy rates have been falling off a cliff. Asking prices have been rising. Sales volumes have been trending up since COVID and even on the way up pre-COVID before 2019 slowdown. And uh, the migration has just uh, just been surging in the Maitland region. And it's the same with Harvey Bay. So, um, Harvey Bay's vacancy rates have fallen off a cliff since the 2017. They had a high point of, you know, above 3%. And uh, they're now well below 1% and seem to be continuing their road down. Prices have shot off since COVID as well. 2021 to 22, Harvey Bay just uh, went on a huge run. And migration, another big move as well. Um, the Fraser Coast, uh, they're, you know, benefiting a lot from uh, migration internally. So these are just some example locations I wanted to shout out, Lee, but they're one of many or two of many. I think the, the key thing I wanted to highlight in that last trend is that the chase for lifestyle is not going to disappear anytime soon. It's going to be a long lasting trend now that the pathways are open. Amazing. All right. Over to you for trend number five again. Changing economic winds. So mm-hmm. this one was very, very difficult for us to map out on a timeline because I don't think it's something timeline wise that I can say, hey, Next 12 months, this happens, 12 to 24, this happens, 24 to 36. But what I can say is that it won't be as strong or as simple as people think, and it won't be as linear as people think, like an economy just moving from strength to strength. We've obviously seen a lot of cash inject into the system, a lot of infrastructure projects, the pipeline that's here, and unemployment has just been trending lower and lower and lower, and it's at just phenomenal rates of unemployment. Like it's extremely tight. Workers are now to the state where they will change and they are being sought after like anything and they're in control. The employers are looking for people like no tomorrow. As a business owner, I'm always looking for people. And from a perspective of uh, the business communities I'm in, I'm hearing many stories about them as well. But I guess why this ties into the border is that The government is very, very keen on getting in 200,000 plus migrant workers to come in and and really get cracking into work, um, support the labor shortages we have, and ease the pressures of that. Now, what that means is that we should see unemployment rates not be so low, and 
this might surprise many, but unemployment rates should actually balance out. Now, okay. that means that we do envision it creeping back up a little bit. They're going to remain very low now, but as the migrant worker inflow comes in, mm-hmm. more workers are coming in, filling in those jobs, and then you end up overshooting it. And right. there are more workers who are looking for work once you solve that labor shortage. This is the part where the timeline of this is hard to really raise because it's dependent on how many countries, how many people are going to start flowing into the borders of Australia. But that is one thing that's going to happen. And it does mean that whilst we have very tight unemployment right now, and it means that the wage growth will follow and will be very tight and is following in many areas, it can't follow strong forever because as more and more migrant workers come in, wage growth will slow after its initial rises. So what that means in summary is that there'll be less pressure on the RBA to continue their rate lifting cycle for too long. There will obviously be inflationary pressures, which we're seeing right now, which will mean that there'll be a succession of them increasing interest rates with the economy so strong, inflation, spending, so forth. However, once a huge flow of border the borders open up and many more migrant workers come in and labor pressures start getting eased. Global supply chains start flowing back to some state of normal. And those other emerging powerhouses who want to take market share to bring back lost supply, because remember, there's certain countries that we're not accepting things from or they're not accepting from us. And it always brings up opportunities, whether it's local opportunities for us locally to support the lost supply or whether there's other countries internationally that will step up. And so when you combine higher worker inflow, when you combine supply-related inflation pressures to ease as we flow through borders opening across the globe, then it definitely means that the pressures on the job markets will fade a little. We should see them balance out. And it just gives less reason for RBA to continue their rate cycle of increases too aggressively. They will no doubt do that at the start because of how strong things are right now from spending, unemployment, and supply issues. Mm-hmm. However, our opinion here is that those changing economic winds will come through, whether it's 12 months, 24, 36, or a little bit longer, as we get to those supply issues solving themselves. And as we get to that worker pressure releasing, when we bring in more workers from overseas, which means that the rate cycle will slow massively when it comes to its uptick and wage growth will be fast initially, Mm -hmm. but it should slow down in our opinion. Amazing. Well, from that perspective, Lee, um, that's pretty much the five trends. And I guess uh, that was uh, our most recent research paper and, and what's really happening there. Amazing. And again, guys, you can find that on investikit.com.au forward slash white papers. And that's now released, isn't it? All, released. All, all up on the site now. And you can grab yourself a copy. Um, yeah, investikit.com.au white papers. And it's all about the reopening of Australian and borders. Completely free. Completely free. And um, five key trends for housing markets. That's it from us on the nerds. Thanks so much. Game over.